grateful to Matthew's willingness to share his story with us, help us understand his journey of faith in maybe a little bit more personal way. Last Sunday, though, I asked you to think about your story. I asked you to think about three questions that might help you focus in on what your journey of faith has been or uh, what your experiences have been. The questions, I'll put them up on the screen, I'll bring them back to your attention this morning, are rather straightforward. I mean, what was it that led you to believe in Jesus? Now, in Matthew's case, it was a conversation with his dad, and certainly experiences with his family leading him up to that point of recognition. But what led you to believe in who Jesus is? Maybe I'm presuming that you've made that choice. Some of you are here today, and maybe you're still thinking about, you're not sure what you're going to do with Jesus or how you're going to respond to him. Well, in my life, a point came where I came to see who Jesus is more clearly. And in Matthew's case, that was also his experience. And then as that happens, how did you respond to Jesus? It's not enough for us just to have some ideas about Jesus that might be correct it actually involves us responding to him, uh, reacting to what we come to see as true in him. Well, how did you respond? And as you have responded, and I'm hoping many of you have, how would you characterize your relationship with Jesus today? I mean, how are you relating to him as you move into the next seven days? I mean, what are you gonna do because of your relationship with Jesus? How we answer these questions help us share our story. And I I hope you'll think through these questions and find the appropriate way to describe uh, your own journey. But when I think about how I'm relating to him now, in the back of my mind is my heart's desire is to follow Jesus. It's to follow his lead. And we've been talking about that over the last five weeks through the series I entitled Rescue, where Jesus came so that he might restore life to us as we relate to him for who he is, as we follow him. There's been a passage that we've been reading throughout the series found in the Gospel of John, chapter 10, where Jesus lays it out. He, he describes himself as a shepherd, and he wants us to f- follow him as his sheep. I'm going to read the passage. Again, uh, we've been looking at this. If you're with us for the first time, if you'd really like to go a little deeper into what are the meaning of these words, I would direct you to our webpage at norfolkworth.com. In the first message in this series, we talked about this passage. But I keep reading it because I want us as followers of Jesus to keep this in view, that we never lose sight of how we relate to him. Listen to what Jesus said. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, there's the emphasis on response. As we respond to Jesus for who he is, as we trust in Jesus for who he is, something extraordinary happens. He says, whoever enters by me, he will be saved. But that's just the starting point. And he will go in and out and find pasture. Uh, The shepherd seeks to lead us and the flock follows him so that we find life in relationship to him. The thief, he explains, comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came 
that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus adds, I am the good shepherd. (laughs) The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus wants us to experience life in him. He wants us to follow his lead as the good shepherd. And my appeal to all of us is that we actively do that this week. But here's a question that I would have us to to examine this morning. What happens when we falter? What happens when I fail to follow Jesus' lead? What then? I should perhaps state, sadly, I think some people have a misconception with regard to the whole Christian experience that maybe they've been told or they've been misled to believe that when you believe in Jesus and you start following Jesus and mark it down, you'll never fail. (laughs) That's not true. I don't know a single follower of Jesus Christ who hasn't faltered. I don't know a a single believer and follower of Jesus who in some way hasn't wandered away. Just because you trust in Jesus and identify him to be the one who offers life doesn't mean that you just magically begin to follow him. You don't. There will be instances where for a variety of reasons perhaps you choose to ignore his lead. Well, what do you do? What do you do when, not if, when you falter? To help us answer that, I want us to come back and focus a little bit more this morning on the experiences of one of Jesus' earliest disciples, Simon Peter. I want us, in our time today, to consider Peter's failure. Now, Jesus was the one that gave Simon the new name Peter, which means Petros, which means rock. I want us to consider what happens when the rock falters, when the rock fails. Throughout the series, I've urged us to be reading through the Gospel of Matthew. When we begin in week one, I suggested, let's just read a chapter a day. And slowly we'll make our way through the gospel. And if you've been doing that consistently, today we reach the end of it. Chapter 28. Now if you started and stopped, let me go back and say, I still want you to just pick up where you stopped and keep reading. Or if you're with us and you've never started to read through the gospel, why not start today? Start to read through the gospel of Matthew with a simple prayer. I want to see Jesus for who he is, relate to him as one who can affect my life. But if you've been reading, I've been trying to highlight episodes in the life of Simon as described in Matthew's gospel. And in Matthew's account, there is an episode where Simon the rock falters horribly. It's recorded in Matthew 26. I'm going to begin the reading at verse 30 just to set the scene. Jesus had gathered with with his inner circle of the 12 disciples to lay out for him that he's about to die. He introduces it symbolically during during the Passover supper and introduces to us what we call the Lord's Supper. But following that emotional moment, Matthew describes how Jesus then takes 11 of the disciples, Judas had slipped away, takes the other 11 to the Mount of Olives. Pick it up at verse 30. And when they, the disciples, had sung a hymn, 
they went out to the Mount of Olives. Then Jesus said to them, you will all fall away because of me this night. For it is written, listen to the language of this, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after, Jesus explains, I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. And all the disciples said the same. Jesus was attempting to prepare the disciples for what they were about to experience. He was attempting to prepare Simon. A few hours pass. They're in the Garden of Gethsemane. Judas brings the authorities into the garden so Jesus could be arrested, betrays Jesus with the kiss. John's gospel tells us Peter tries to intervene. I think, in a sense, he's trying to live up to his earlier boast. I'm willing to die for you. So he took a sword as if he was going to single-handedly fight off those that were trying to arrest Jesus. He swings the sword and cuts off the ear of the servant of the high priest. Jesus confronts Peter and tells him to put the sword away, that this isn't the way this is going to be resolved, then proceeds to heal the servant, restoring the ear to his head. Well, the disciples disperse. They're in a panic. Jesus is arrested. Simon, unlike the others, though, follows behind at a distance. I can't help but imagine still that he's replaying what he said to Jesus. Everybody else will leave you. I'm not going to leave you. I mean, he, he tried to step up. He tried to defend Jesus. And now he's arrested. And so Simon, at a distance, just trails behind until they reach the destination. And then he enters in. Matthew describes this for us beginning in verses 69 and following. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard, and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all. Notice, he didn't just speak to her. There were others gathered. He denied it before them all, saying, I, I, I don't know what you mean. Can I comment there? I think he just reacted. I don't think he even had a second to consider what he did. I think he was confronted by this girl kind of unexpectedly, and so he quickly tried to redirect attention away from himself. No, 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 you, I don't know what you mean. And verse 71, he went out to the entrance. He's trying to avoid attention. 
And as he's there, notice, uh, another servant girl saw him. And she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with, this time, an oath. He kind of ratchets up the denial. He, he makes an oath. I do not know the man. Now, let me remind you of what happened in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, excuse me, Simon took out a sword. He struck the servant of the high priest. He knew that he had acted that way. I can't help but, again, appreciate that he was wondering, is there somebody here that saw that? Am I going to be exposed? And so he tries to reject this accusation by calling on some sacred oath to verify his testimony. Verse 72, or 73, and after a little while, a crowd forms. The bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you two are one of them for your accent betrays you. Then Simon began to invoke a curse on himself. He began to swear, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. I do not know the man. He could not be more adamant. And immediately, the rooster crowed. Now Luke's gospel gives us a further insight into this scene. It describes how apparently at this point, maybe Jesus is being brought across the courtyard. This is how Luke describes it immediately while he was still speaking. While Simon is denying that he knows Jesus, the rooster crowed, verse 61 of Luke 22, and the Lord turned and looked at Peter. Before we go on, think with me. What do you think Simon saw in Jesus' eyes? Disappointment? Maybe a sense of superiority on Jesus' part? Simon, I told you. What do you think he saw? Can I suggest what I believe he saw? I believe when he caught the gaze of Jesus, what he saw in Jesus' eyes was love. Plain and simple. And here's the deal. If you were thinking he saw disappointment, see, you're projecting what you fear is God's gaze on you. Or if you're thinking superiority. Again, you're projecting. No, you need to know what the Bible clearly teaches about Jesus toward his flock. He loves them, even when they fail. And I'm convinced that when Peter saw into the eyes of Jesus, it was the love of Jesus that he saw. Now the rooster crows, the rooster, I guess, was like a wake-up call for Simon. As Matthew goes on to add, to finish out the story, 
verse 73, and after the rooster crow, Peter remembered the sayings of Jesus. Before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Peter, the rock, crumbles, doesn't he? Could he have failed any more miserably than what he did? So, what do we learn from this? Interestingly, Simon's failure is recorded in all four Gospels. I'm sure he would have preferred that maybe only one tell this part of his story. They all tell it. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all point to this episode in Simon's life. Why? Not to embarrass him, but to help us. His failure is there for our benefit. Now, what do we learn from this? Well, as I have reflected this week, and maybe you can think with me about this too, there are several things that can help us out of his experience. First thing I would suggest as we evaluate what this means, I mean, what do we do when we falter? What should we do? I, I would recommend that at some point what we need to do is to try to understand the cause. Why did Simon stumble? I think we do ourselves a disservice when we falter and all we do is seek to find forgiveness and never stop long enough to ask the question, well, why did I do that? We don't want to get into a pattern of repeating the mistakes and the way that we can avoid the pattern is to stop at some point, whether you do so immediately or shortly thereafter and ask the question of yourself, why did I do that? What was the cause that led me, that provoked me in a way that... I stumbled in this embarrassing way. Now, in Simon's case, I, again, I tried to think through what contributed to his failure. You know what? I concluded there were two factors that are not only present with him, but if we take a, an honest look at our own lives, I think we can see them in ourselves. The first is this. I'm convinced what caused the rock to crumble on the front end was the sense of self-sufficiency on his part. I think you hear it in his tone when he reacts to what Jesus says. Jesus says to him, listen, you're all going to fall away. And how does Peter react? Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. He puts himself front and center. And Jesus tries to say, now, come on, Simon, you need to step back from that. You're going to deny me three times. No, Simon isn't even going to listen to what Jesus says. He, he takes it up a level in verse 35. Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Simon thought he had what it took to deliver on his promise. Now, in a way, he tried in the garden to defend Jesus, but... He got stared down by a little girl. And crumbled. And I would suggest 
part of what contributed to that was this notion that he could handle it himself. Now, I highlight it this way because of what also happened in the garden. See, Jesus pulled some of the disciples aside so that he could pray, and he wanted them to pray. Luke tells us he gave them clear instructions. I'm reading from Luke 22:40. Jesus explained to Peter, Andrew, James, and John, this is what I want you to do. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. That's a pretty straightforward directive, right? You need to be praying for yourself that you don't enter into temptation. Well, Matthew tells us in verse 40 of chapter 26, Jesus returns after praying for a short while, and this is what is described. Verse 40 reads, And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. But observe this. Instead of addressing them, he said to Peter, So, could you not watch with me one hour? And Jesus doesn't stop there. He then adds, watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus is seeking to help us understand something that's true of all of us. We don't have what it takes within ourselves to withstand temptation. We absolutely need the help and the strength that comes from God himself. And prayer, you see, is our attempt to come before the Lord in such a way where we might receive from him the inner strength that is his to do what's needed. But See, it's spiritually directed, isn't it? But Simon, for whatever reason, didn't understand that at this point. Do you? And when you retrace your failures, to what degree can you sincerely say you were completely dependent on the Lord, you were turning to the Lord, you were seeking the help of the Lord actively, admitting your inadequacy? See, whenever self-sufficiency is present, it, it will always set us up to fail. When we think we can handle it, get ready. You won't. Thankfully, Simon eventually learns this. Now, those of you that finished reading through the Gospel of Matthew, maybe you're wondering, where do we read next? Why not start tomorrow by reading through a little letter that the Apostle Peter writes called 1 Peter? It's toward the end of the New Testament. You can look it up on the table of contents if you don't know where it's located. There are five chapters. Just read a chapter a day this week, and you can go on into, he has a second letter called 2 Peter. There are three other chapters that you can carry on. But I want us to read there this week because I'm convinced Simon learned out of his failure. He learned about the danger of self-sufficiency. I say that based on what he writes in 1 Peter 5. In verse 5, he states a principle, and it's a principle that maybe we should remind ourselves of constantly. Verse 5 reads, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. He helps the humble, you see. Then Simon adds, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time, he, God, may exalt you. Verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him. I think he's directing us to pray. Because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. 
Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion. Where do you think he got that? Seeking someone to devour. He had been devoured. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kind of suffering or being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world and after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace, the God of all provision, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Simon learned the lesson. See, we sometimes stumble because we actually try to handle it on our own. Second, I think another factor is what I would characterize as self-preservation. And that's what happened in the courtyard. Um, the young girl comes up to him. In the back of his mind, he's replaying what happened in the garden. He knows his life is potentially in jeopardy. And so when confronted about whether he is a follower of Jesus, he denies. Why? To save himself, right? It's all about self-preservation. He thought, if I, if I admit to this, they're going to arrest me. Now, in your case, when it comes to self-preservation, it may not be quite so dramatic, but it's just as in, in, influential. When you look at how you have wandered away, is it conceivable that you wandered away because you're preserving something within yourself that you really want to keep? It, I know I need to follow Jesus' lead, but I really like this, or there's something about this that I think is better for me than even following Jesus. I'm preserving self. Remember what we looked at last week in Matthew 16, where Jesus, I think, tries to expose the fallacy of that thinking? He says in verse 24, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. That's pretty clear, right? And we come after him because we know life is in him. Verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And so, if we're not careful, sometimes we continue to stumble or drift away because we are trying to protect something within ourselves rather than to deny it follow him. Well, that's enough kind of dissecting the cause. Well, I can look at why I've done what I've done. How do I now respond? I mean, I, I know I have faltered. What do I do if I recognize that I falter? Let me, before we close, try to point you to a message that offers hope to all of us. What I would suggest next is in a fresh way, accept Jesus' love on your behalf. As I've already indicated, I'm convinced what Simon saw in Jesus' eyes in the courtyard were the eyes of someone who loved him. What I want you to realize this Sunday morning, regardless of how you've wandered away, if you were to turn your eyes heavenward this morning, I want you to know the eyes that you'll see will be eyes of love. He loves you. And he wants you to know that. 
Again, I, I say it as strongly as I do because even before Simon failed, Jesus tried to give him a heads up on that. I'm taking you back to, to the gospel account where in Luke 22, listen to what Luke says happened in this exchange that we've already discussed. Verses 31 and 32, this is Jesus speaking. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Now, let me clarify. Jesus has announced you are going to fail. My prayer is that you're going to come out on the other side of it, Simon, that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again back to him, strengthen your brothers. Is that not uplifting to you? Jesus, knowing what's about to happen, says to Simon, you know what? I'm praying for you. Why? I love you, Simon. I'm not going to let you go. I'm not going to let you go. And you should realize this morning, regardless of how you've wandered away, this Sunday morning, Jesus would say to you, I love you. I will not let you go. I'm praying for you. Yeah, he prayed for Simon. Well, the book of Hebrews chapter 7 verse 25 says, Our high priest Jesus is ever making intercession for us, which includes you. I appreciate how Paul tries to lift our spirits when he says in Romans, at the end of Romans 8, there's nothing that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. Nothing. So the love of Jesus is there. Will you accept it? And if I say, yes, I will accept it. Now, here's the deal. Will I then turn to the one who loves me? Let me finish by directing you to yet another gospel account. This one in the gospel of John. We're not going to read it. You'll find it in John chapter 21. It's an episode, again, involving Simon after he's failed and struggled and, and, and denied the Lord in the way that he has. Um, we realize that even then Jesus is reaching out to him. Now, their conversation are in verses 15 through 19. Maybe this afternoon you would be blessed if you read the whole chapter. Because this is what it describes. Jesus has already died and ascended. And he's appeared to the disciples in John's gospel on two occasions. And they, as a group, were supposed to go to Galilee to await Jesus. Simon, as chapter 1 begins, decides that what he's going to do is go fishing. Now, there's wide discussion on the significance of that. He's just kind of biding the time. I don't think so. What was Simon, before Jesus asked him to, to be one of his disciples, doing? He was a fisherman. And I'm of the mindset that following his failure, you know what Simon was entertaining? I'm just going to go back to do what I did. I don't deserve, you know, to continue to be one of the disciples. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go fishing. And in John 21, that's what he's doing, and he's pulled six other disciples with him. Jesus shows up. Now the boat and the disciples are out on the Sea of Galilee. They've had an unsuccessful time fishing. And uh, someone from the shore calls out to them, Children, have you caught anything? 
They had to be frustrated because they hadn't. And then that voice from the shore calls out, throw the nets on the other side. Now, if you'd been fishing for hours unsuccessfully, you probably wouldn't think, oh, yeah, sure. But they did it. And their nets immediately filled. John recognizes it's the Lord and says so. Simon, hearing John, suddenly grabs his cloak, jumps into the water, starts to swim to the shore, reaches the shore, and Jesus had prepared a breakfast. And so when the others finally arrive, I'm sure a little frustrated with Simon, they had been struggling with the net. In fact, they had been unable to get it into the boat. They finally just had to pull the the net full of fish to shore, and they counted. There were 153. It was a huge catch. But then they gather with Jesus at the fire. Now, what's going on here? Why has Jesus come to the Sea of Galilee? I would suggest to you it it was to restore Simon. In my mind, he pulls him aside and they enter into a conversation. And that's what's described in verses 15 through 19. And as they begin to talk, Jesus raises a question. In fact, he raises it three times. Now, there, in my, again, as I think about it, there could be any number of ways or questions Jesus might pose. For example, Simon, why did you do that? Again, kind of evaluate cause. Maybe it would have been a helpful discussion. Or maybe as Jesus could have asked Simon, are you going to try harder? Now, that may be a question that one of us would have raised. But the question Jesus raises is actually the most important question for all of us to consider. In view of Simon's failure, you know what the question Jesus had to ask? It was this, Simon, do you love me? It was a relationship question. Simon, do you love me? Now, the first time Jesus asked the question, he says, now, do you love me more than these? Some conclude from that that maybe Jesus kind of stretched out his arm and was pointing to the other disciples because it was Simon who basically pledged, though everybody else would turn away, I'll be there for you. And he was kind of saying, yeah, you really love me more than these? I wondered, though, if perhaps what Jesus was pointing to wasn't the other disciples, but it was the boat. It was the former life. Do you love me more than these? I'm not precise in knowing. I know he's trying to push Simon to take an honest look at his heart. One other observation, when he asks the question, he uses a word for love in the New Testament, which is the most noble expression of love. It's the word agape. It's the term that emphasizes a love that's driven by commitment, a love that is driven by the will. It's the expression of God's love toward us. Do you Agape, love me, Simon. Simon's reaction was, Lord, you know that I love you, but he changes the word. He uses another Greek word, phileo, which means I love you like a brother. Stay with this. Simon already boasted that he was going to be over and above in terms of his devotion to Jesus, and he failed. I don't think he felt worthy even to meet Jesus at the point 
of what Jesus was asking because of his failure. I can't say that I love you that way, Jesus. I, I love you like a brother. Jesus comes back at it. Well, Simon, do you love me? A second time, still asking agape. Simon says, I love you, phileo, like a brother. The third time Jesus asks, and John records at this point, Simon's heart begins to feel the pain of it. Why would he feel the pain with the third question? It's not hard to figure out. How many times did he deny him? Three. And this is beautiful. You know what Jesus does the third, with the third question? He says, now, do you love me phileo, Simon, like a brother? In other words, Jesus says to Simon, I want to meet you where you view yourself emotionally at this point. Do you love me like that? And Simon's response, yes. Though his heart was heavy, being confronted with his past failure. When you look at this conversation, you know what Jesus is trying to do? He loves Simon just as he loves you. He's trying to help Simon refocus on the relationship that would lead him forward. In the language of John 10, he's trying to help Simon refocus his heart's attention on the shepherd. If you look at the passage later, you'll realize after each confession of devotion on Simon's part, he says to Simon, well, why don't you take care of my sheep, my flock? See, the language is there. But for that to be effectual in Simon's life, he has to focus again on the shepherd. And so do you. When we wander away, what Jesus isn't asking us to do is to try harder. He's asking us to focus our hearts upon him, to let the shepherd lead us in and out. And as we refocus on him, he then will ask you to follow him again. That's how he concludes the conversation with Simon. He says to him, come on, follow me. And what Jesus is saying to someone here this Sunday morning, I'm not asking you now to, to go an extra mile. I'm just asking you to get up and follow me. Stop being self-sufficient. Stop trying to preserve your own selfish desires. Focus in on who I am and the impact I can make upon your life and follow me. Just follow me. Are you willing to do that? Jesus says he wants to lead us in and out of pasture. That includes even after we wandered away. The abundant life did not have a disclaimer. Oh, you can't have the abundant life if you've wandered away. No, you come back to the shepherd. You come back. And the life is in him. If you'll get up and follow him. I'm going to ask some of our members to come forward and the band's going to come to the platform. We're going to give you a moment to personalize whatever your response is today. Now, they're coming to the front not because they're better than you. They're coming to the front because they're one of you. 
and they want to encourage you. And maybe as someone is here today, you just realize, I need to renew my commitment to follow Jesus. I need to refresh that devotion. Now, you can do that where you stand or sit, but I, I think there's something revitalizing when we allow another person to join us and to encourage us in prayer. Maybe your need today isn't a spiritual one. It's just emotional. Life has beat you down. You just need to seek the help of God in a fresh way. They're here to pray with you. Why would we step outside of that? So would you stand? I'm going to pray, and then we'll give you these few moments to respond. Dear God, thank you for the attentiveness of each person that's here this morning. I pray for those who would be honest enough to admit they had wandered. But today they want to find in a fresh way the love of the shepherd, the forgiveness of the shepherd, the strength of the shepherd. So Lord, help us, grant us courage and faith to respond. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.